1: to see
2: Yeah.
3: As Julie Andrews said in The Sound of Music, if you want to learn something, it's best to start at the very beginning. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to go to Genesis chapter 1. In chapter 1 of Genesis, God does his creating. And it says when he started on the scene, the world was in in mass chaos. It was, it was uh, wild and waste is what the Hebrew says. By the end of the chapter, he has created harmony and order. He's created a garden, and he's finally created man. And in verse 28, he says this. He gives us our marching orders. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. He's subdued that wild and woolly chaos, and he's asking us to go out and that same kind of harmony in the world. In chapter 2, there's a slightly different account of creation. In that account, God defines what is good. You may eat of anything in the garden except that tree. Eat freely of everything else, but not that tree. In the day that you eat of that tree, you will die. Well, if you know the story, you know that by chapter 3, Satan has made his appearance and he's tempted them to eat of that tree. So God comes and he pronounces the, benefit, the consequences of what has just been done. And he tells them that there will come, he tells Satan that there will come a, a seed from the woman, a man who will crush Satan's head, but Satan will only bruise his heel. That's the very first... Whoops, there we go. That's the very first glimmer we have of a Redeemer who will eventually come to set us free. And the rest of the New Testament tells the story of how he will come and leads up to the birth of Jesus. But now I want to point out a couple of things from that passage that may have... Slipped right past you. Number one, it would appear that Eden included a mountain. Well, how do I know that? Well, because it says that there's a river that flows out of Eden, and rivers have their headwaters in mountains. But it goes on and it says that in chapter, t- chapter 2, verse 10, that a river flows out of the garden and it's split into four different rivers. And the names are significant to me. Pishon, it means to increase. Gihon, it means bursting forth. Tigris, it means rapid. And Euphrates means breaking forth and rushing with fruitfulness. Now just hold on to those facts for just a little while. We'll get back to them. But I want to focus for a minute on the idea of mountains. Some significant things in the Bible happen on mountains. Moses first meets God on a mountain. And he introduces himself as I am. Later Moses comes back to that same mountain. After he has led the people of Israel out of Egypt. At that point God gives his covenant to the people and explains the series of sacrifices that they are to use to take care of their sin problem until Jesus comes to put a final solution on that. Another significant event on a mountain occurred when Elisha battled against Baal to prove that I am, our God, is the supreme God. For us, there are some more instances of important things happening on mountains, there's the Mount of Transfiguration when God spoke and declared that Jesus was his son and commands us to listen to him. And for us, as we take communion, we acknowledge an event that occurred on Mount Calvary. It was on that mountain that the battle was fought for who is king of kings And Jesus proved that he was king of kings on Easter morning when he rose from the dead. He overcame our last enemy, death. But now I want to focus on still another mountain, the Mount of Olives. It was there that Jesus gave what we know as the Great Commission. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So now what? Ha- now that we've got our marching orders and his promise that he will go with us, I hear the Lord challenging us in this time of communion to be like those rivers that I referred to earlier. Go, breaking forth and rushing in fruitfulness to take the good news of what we celebrate here, salvation to all who believe. And the beauty of that command is that that his spirit will flow through us to accomplish the work just like those rivers flow out to water the earth. So let's pray. Father, in the words of Amy Carmichael, the great missionary to India, give us that love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope no disappointments tire, the passion that will burn like fire. Let us not sink to be clods, but make us thy fuel, O flame of God. Thank you that you will go with us on this mission and that you will empower us with your spirit to do the work that you have commanded. We ask these things and pray these things in the name of Jesus.
0: one of the oldest games actually on our planet. It's called the telephone game. It predates the telephone in 1876. It goes all the way back to China. It's called Chinese whispers. Most of you have played this game. You know, one person whispers in their ear and they whisper and it goes all the way around. Kira turned me on to a game last year and wrecked my life because of this game. Uh, telephone pictionaries i would call oh my goodness i was terrible at this game is the worst all right you you whisper and then you write and you draw i was awful at it but the whole premise of the game is that what comes out the other end in form and in con and in concept is rarely what started with does that make sense And there's a couple of morals to the story. One of them is, hey, it's important to listen. But it's also a moral about how easy it is for words to change over time we're in this series people of the word that's how we're starting out this year being people of the word and our goal is bible literacy we want to be a bible believing in church we want to be a bible using church i want you to have one but i want us to know what it's about and that we can count on it how can we be sure that what we hold now is what they said then because As Christ followers, we look at Scripture, and we look at every issue out there through the eyes of Scripture, every hot-button issue that's out there. Abortion, homosexuality, uh, anything from illegal immigration to freedoms. As a Christ follower, we should look at them through Scripture. But if the world doesn't respect Scripture, do we look weird? You see what I'm saying? So I want us to have a good knowledge of Bible, and that that it is a real authority in our life we 're going to start in psalm thirty three I apologize I tried to fix that and we 're going to ask you if you 're able and willing to stand as we read scripture together if you 're online you don 't have to stand, but you, you know we want you in on this if you 're listening on the radio, welcome to central Christian Church in portalis we 're going to do two verses we 're going to go super fast today there 's a lot of nerdy stuff in here, and we 're going to We're going to completely geek out for a little while, okay? Psalm 33 and verse 4. I'm only going to read these first two. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all He does. Amen? The Lord loves righteousness and justice The earth is full of His unfailing love. I'm reading from the NIV. Now jump over to Proverbs. I'm going to stop right there and jump over to Proverbs. Just a couple of quick verses in Proverbs or scroll up to Proverbs if you're using the app. Proverbs 30 and verse 5. Every word of God is flawless. Amen? He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Thank you, thank you for standing. Read the word. Have a seat, and let's get going as we're going into this study, how can we be sure that what we hold now is what they said then. As I've been prepping for this, I've been looking at a lot of studies and surveys. If you were with us last week, we're going to continue to share some of this information. Barna did a survey in 2019 about how Americans feel about the Bible. Not Christians, Americans, all right? And they had four categories. And one on this one particular question. How do you feel about the Bible? 21% of Americans said engaged. What that meant was you read it three to four times a week. That's pretty good. The second category was friendly to the Bible. That meant you liked it, you had it, you may not read it all the time, but you know what it is. You've been to church. That's a little over, those two groups together are a little over half of our population. But it's the next two categories that concern me. The third category was, I feel neutral to the Bible. 23% said they don't care about the Bible. They don't respect the Bible, and they don't see it. It's old. It's outdated. And here, this one, 17% were, and they checked antagonistic to the Bible. They were against it. They despised the Bible, the Christians, and rules. Almost half of our society does not look at the Bible as a book of authority. Even though we're a country that says, in God we trust on our money, almost half don't trust it. How did we get here? How did we get to a place where almost half of America can't trust God's Word? And that's what I want to look at. I want you to hear, I want us to look at how we got to this. Now, if you are like me, were in the 80s, every year about Christmas or Easter, Newsweek and Time would put out a magazine, and, and it would have a picture of Jesus on it, and their circulation would spike. Now, a lot of times the articles were a kind of a bait and switch. It would talk about how mean Christians are and how, you know, and bad they are. And CBS and NBC would run around Easter, they'd run Jesus movies, okay? And so we saw that in the public. And in the 80s, there was a group of biblical scholars. Two guys started, a guy named Robert Funk and another guy named John Dominic Crossan, started a thing called the Jesus Seminar. And it was a week-long seminar where they get all of these biblical scholars, not earthly scholars, biblical scholars together out in California at a retreat for a week. And they would sit there and read the Gospels. And they would vote on which of the Gospels they thought and which of the statements they thought were true. And they would vote with this weirdo bead thing. They'd throw a bead in a bucket. Red meant I did. Green meant I didn't or something. It was this weird voting system. But they did this six years, a week, every six years. By the time they got done with this, the Bible scholars, people that have PhDs in Bible history that are supposed to be Christians, by the time this seminar was over, they agreed only 18% of the Gospels were accurate. The smartest guys in the room... Are questioning the accuracy of the Bible, and then you come along in 2003, and a guy named Dan Brown writes a book called Da Vinci Code. Anybody remember this? Full transparency. I love the book. I love the movie. All right, I'm a big fan of Dan Brown's stuff. It was fiction, people. It was fiction. All right, and some people, oh my goodness, you're a heretic. No, it's a fun kind of adventure. In this story, he he proposes that Jesus had this secret life. Okay. But it's a popular book. It goes huge, viral. Everybody loves it. Made into a movie, Tom Hanks. In the book and in the movie, there's a character named Sir Lee Teabing, played by Ian McKellen. Sir Ian McKellen. And he has this statement. And he makes it with bold fervor. He says that the Bible has evolved through translations and revisions over time. It has evolved. Now, you hear what's going on here? A very popular fiction book is talking about the Bible and calling the Bible fiction. Do you see where we're going with this trend? You know, with this trend. This slide here. And then in 2006, a guy named Bart Ehrman came out with a book called Misquoting Jesus. And Bart was, he's written another one called Jesus Interrupted, revealing the hidden contradictions in the Bible. Bart Ehrman was a conservative Christian raised in the church, and he set out to study how they transcribed the manuscripts, how they wrote the Bible. And in this academic study... It made him abandon his faith, his conservative values. This is a quote. I'm going to quote the book, misquoting Jesus a couple of times, and I'm going to try to not misquote it. Uh, how, here's this here's quote. How can you possibly have any confidence in the reliability of the Bible? There are more textual variations in the New Testament than there are words in the New Testament. Basically what he's saying, if you have any common sense at all, you've got to realize that this Bible is a fabrication. How do we respond to that? How do we react when, when, how do you handle it when people question this book that we hold so dear? And it happens all the time. They'll come in and they'll show what they think are errors or conflicts in scripture where, well, in this particular place, Jesus healed or fed 5,000, and this one he fed 4,000. See, it didn't even get along with itself. And they'll show stuff like that and they'll say it with such energy and they'll make posts on Facebook and and on the internet and we'll see all of this stuff about how bad church is and how bad the bible is and it's outdated how do we respond I want us to be a bible believing and a bible using church and I want us to see how we're dealing with this well here's a couple of responses the first one despair <laughs> What are we going to do? This book that we've sold out to doesn't, it, it, I guess it's not true because I saw it on Facebook and we all know that's true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? We see this and it starts to question. I'll tell you another response that we have, and I called it an ignorant certainty. And what I mean by that is we see this stuff and rather than go, look, we, we, We bow up our backs, and we say, but we're Christians, and that's our book, and and that's how it is. And we get all stuffy about it. And we hear people say stuff like, well, the King James is good enough for Jesus. It's good enough for me. Now, you may not have heard somebody say that. I actually heard a lady say that. I was like 17 years old going, I don't think that's right, but okay. You know, um, I didn't know any different at that time. Or we double down on, listen, I'm not making fun. Some of you may have said this. Have you ever heard this phrase, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, all right? I've I've used that. And honestly, I agree with that. But if we start blasting that out there to the public, that they already don't respect this book, it's showing us to be uninformed and not willing to dig. I suggest, I would like to propose to you a third response. When people start to attack the scripture, I would like us to find this, informed faith. Now, you got to understand, I'm going to talk super fast here. I, there's tons and tons of research. If you really like this kind of stuff, I want to tell you about a guy named Daniel B. Wallace. Write his name down. You can go to his website, DanielBWallace.com. He is a professor of New Testament theology at... Dallas Theological Seminary. He is the director of the Center for Study of New Testament Manuscripts. His name is Daniel B. Wallace. In the 70s, he wrote a book called Greek Grammar that is still used in almost every seminary worldwide. He was just a phenomenal guy. He took Bart Ehrman's research, and this is where I got a lot of this, and I'm fired up about this. He looked at Bart Ehrman's stuff, and I don't want this to be a seminar, but I want you to see how fun and see how powerful this is. Was Bart Ehrman, when he starts making fun of Scripture, is he right? He says, Bart Ehrman said there's more variants than there are words. Now, a variant is a, when they're hand translating it, there's a little, maybe a spelling change, maybe a a syntax change, right? You're tracking with me? Are there more variants than words? Actually, Bart Ehrman's correct. There are, you ready for this, 138,162 Greek words in the New Testament. I know exactly zero of them. All right? 140,000 words in the New Testament. There are over 400,000 variants. A little math will tell you that's about two and a half per word. You're telling me, Don, that every word in the, bio, in the New Testament, when it was translated, two and a half times on every single word there were changes. You see, if that's the only data we got, despair would be the right thing, all right? we w- That would be normal. We would go, wow, we can't trust it for anything. But Wallace goes in and he says, look, we have an embarrassment of riches about how this was done, about how many times this was hidden. Now, now do you get that the New Testament was written in Greek? Everybody got that? I don't know if any of you speak Greek. I don't, okay, but it was written in Greek. That was the language of the time. How many handwritten, and they, you know, I mean, when Paul would write a letter, he'd handwrite a letter, he'd dictate it, and they'd pass it around, and people made copies of it. How many copies and copies and copies? We have over 5,800 original handwritten copies of Bible texts over 100 have been discovered in the last decade. That were handwritten before the printing press came into play. That's kind of the dividing line. The printing press came into play about 1450, okay? So, before the printing press, everybody's hand translating stuff. After the printing press, you can make copies of it. But before that, there's 5800 of these. But come along in the second or third century and Const- uh, Constantine, everybody remember Constantine was the he moves his capital to Istanbul, not Const- Constantinople, not Istanbul, not Constantinople. And he is that's where his leadership is, and the, the language changes to Latin. If you were raised in a Catholic background, most of you know that a lot of the Catholic Bibles were written in Latin, right? How many copies do we have of the Bible translated from Greek into Latin? Over 10,000. Well, that's not the only language on the planet. What is, was the Bible originally hand-translated into other languages? Yes. We have over 10,000 of those copies, too. We have over 28 or 26,000 handwritten manuscripts before the printing press. And then you come along and you have scholars, not biblical people, but ancient leaders, Ignatius, Polycarp, Clement of Rome, that write things and they, they reference Bible verses. To know that it, I mean, on they quote Bible verses over a million times, they quote Bible verses prior to the printing press. And you're sitting there with a glazed look on your face going, I don't get it, Don. What does this matter to me? Why does this matter to me? Well, here, for just argument's sake, let's compare that with how much we know about Roman history. How many of you have ever heard of the rise and fall of Roman Empire, right? Any of you there? Were any of you all there? Okay. Uh, So we weren't there. How do we know about it? People wrote it down, right? How many copies of Roman history or Arab history do we have? Between three and four hundred. Not thousands, hundreds. If we stack them up, they're going to be about yay high, right? If we stack up all of the copies of the Bible, it's going to be over a mile high. Over four and a half times the Empire State Building. The technical term for that is a bunch. Okay, it's a staggering amount. It is unbelievable amount of documents that consistently hold so much. So this Bart Ehrman, that was the Christian they started making fun of, he had to add into the appendix of that book misquoting Jesus. And I want to quote this. He said this: "Essential Christian beliefs are not affected." by textual variance in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. Even the guy that is making fun of the Bible has to admit it it didn't change. He says in one part you can't trust it, but it didn't really change any. All right, well then let's talk about the Old Testament. Let's fast forward to 1945. 1945 some shepherd boys in israel were wandering around and they found some caves and they threw some rocks in caves and one of them they heard a crash and they went and climbed into the cave and they found these old pots that had scrolls in them we call them the dead sea scrolls most historians will tell you it is the most significant historical find possibly ever all right and and there's still, even last year, they found ten more scrolls. They found another cave there. It is an active dig when we're, we're there. It's in the northwest corner of the Dead Sea area. It's one of the lowest places on earth, one of the driest places on earth. And And this find was so epic because they found in these scrolls complete copies of every book in the Old Testament except the book of Esther. And they think they may have found parts of Esther in this most recent discovery. Okay, up until 1945, up until this time, listen to me now, the the way they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew was a thing called the Masoretic Text. Everybody say Masoretic Text. I'm not asking you to go get a master's. I'm just asking you to trust me for a minute. That was the, that was kind of the standard, all right? That was the most solid piece of literature they had. And it was translated in 800 A.D. And some of you are going, wait a minute. Yeah, after Jesus, the Old Testament was translated. You tracking with me? 800 A.D. is the most consistent version of the Bible they had, of the Old Testament. Then you come along in 1945 and they find these You know, 1,100 years later, they find these scrolls. So this Daniel B. Wallace, right, he goes and he wants to go look at the text. And he takes Isaiah 53. Isaiah was one of the very first scrolls they found. He takes the Masoretic text from 800 A.D., and he takes the Dead Sea Scrolls, and he lays them out beside each other. And he compares just this one chapter. There's 166 words in the book in, in Isaiah 53. He finds 17 letters different. You hearing me? 17, that's it. Ten of them were spelling changes. And let's make an example. If I were to spell the word H-O-N-O-R, what would I say? If I were to spell the word H-O-N-O-U-R, what would I be saying? Which one's correct? They're both correct, right? It's It's just a different spelling. It's an acceptable... Ten of those changes were that. Four of the changes were a syntax change. It might have been what we would say as an apostrophe or a comma or something like that. didn't affect anything. The only thing that changed was one three-letter word that means light that was in Isaiah 53, 11. It did not affect the... It just said they have seen him, and it said they have seen his light. Now, here's my point. Over a thousand years of the telephone game, from 800 to 1945, and only 17 letters, only one word is different. Only one word. God is consistent. You see, what you hold now is what they said then. And you're going, why does this matter? Why would God... Protect this in such a bizarre, supernatural way. Friends, it's so we would get to know the author, not the book, the author of the book. The one seamless story through the whole Bible is that he wants a relationship with us. Now, last week I postulated inerrancy. Can we trust a Bible that has errors? And honestly, either the Bible is inerrant or it's it's either true or it's not. There's no middle ground. You hearing me? Is it true? Well, see, that's a hard one to describe in our culture because this word inerrancy is hard. A lot of people look at it and go, well, everything's relative, Don. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's an old book, and there's no such thing as absolute truth. What you think is true and what I think is true is different. And I mean, it's an old book, and hasn't science proved it wrong over time? Actually, No. It has stood up against science many, many times. I don't have time to go into all this. If that is something you're really interested, two books I want to recommend to you. One, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's the classic. Josh McDowell, probably 30, 40 years old, never gets old incredible stuff another one is called the case for christ by lee strobel lee strobel's wife got saved and he was mad about it and so he he's a writer and he decides i'm gonna prove this bible and jesus junk is a cult it's a bunch of fake the more he studied the more he came to know jesus if you if you want a copy of that i've got copies of that in my office i love that book i love i i highly recommend it to you now Believing in an error-free Bible doesn't mean that we take every letter and every statement for literal, uh, rigid truth. The Bible speaks in figurative language. The Bible speaks in poetic language. We cannot take everything for every moment. But what we can take is that what you hold now has been over thousands of years consistently proven true that verse in Isaiah 53. Does anybody remember what that one is? That Isaiah 53 that Wallace translated from both of them. It's this. He was pierced for our sins. He was crushed. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of our sins and it is by his wounds we are healed. That, my friends, is blessed assurance. We can be assured that God's Word is true. Psalm 107, verse 20, He sent out His Word and it healed them. What John one fourteen 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among them. And Hebrews 1, and verse 1 says, in, in olden times He spoke to us through prophets and, and dreams, but now He has spoken to us through His Son Jesus. And then John 16, 13, that I'm loving. It's the one Marie read a minute ago. The Spirit will guide us into all truth. Friends, when people doubt God's word, when the culture and and the internet mock it, you can see his consistency. Honestly, how could we not? You see, why I want us to have an informed faith is because I believe we trust that God would not allow his word to be twisted. I don't know Hebrew. I don't know Greek. I don't know all of the things, but I know that the son of God himself testified to the goodness. Matthew chapter five, verse 18 says not one detail of God's law will disappear until it is achieved. The son of God says it is true. Friends, when culture attacks it, when they say it's old, it's Hard to understand. It's outdated. We don't need to bow up. We need to. Hebrews 11:1. Faith is the assurance of things I hope for. It's the substance of things I believe. I believe God's word is true. Thank you. I believe God's word is true. I can trust it. Our faith in God will make it clear to us. Stick with me for just a couple of minutes. A story and a couple of verses. A, I read this story about a little girl, she was in the mall, and she was singing, she, I don't know, four or five years old, a little girl, and she was singing, how great my God is. My God is so great, he parted the Red Sea, and all of Israel went through, uh, and, and it was safe. And it, she was just singing, and she had been in Sunday school, and she was all fired up. And an older man that was clearly an agnostic kind of got her and said, hey, you, you know that's, that's not true, right? You know, I mean, they've proven all this. I mean, seriously. Seriously. Jonah in a whale for three? Oh, come on! Uh, and an ark that has all of those animals? Uh, no, you know it's all fake, and it's all made up. It's all just stories. And the Red Sea, when when it parted, that part of the season, the Red Sea is only five inches deep. It wasn't that big deal for him to walk through. And she sat there and thought for a minute, and then she got a big look on her face. She says. Wow, my God is so great. He drowned the entire Egyptian army in five inches of water. <laughs> you see, that's what inerrancy is. I can trust, even if I don't understand it. You hear me? I can stand on God's Word. It is trustworthy. It is reliable. It is without error. It is consistent. I want us to be a Bible-believing in and a Bible-using church. And I want us to look at one more passage. Most of you recognize this. Matthew, 5, Matthew 3, 16. After he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him as a dove and settling on him. Do you remember what the next verse says? And the heavens opened, and God spoke, and he said, This is my beloved, beloved Son, in whom I am. Beloved. Well, please, listen to him. Now listen to that whole passage for a second, okay? God Almighty says, this is my son. The Spirit of the Lord landed on him as a dove. Not a dove. We always think, you know, some bird landed on his head. No, it was the Spirit of God on his head, and it never left him. Jesus was part of God. The Spirit is part of God. They are together. And he, God came down on him, and he never left. Now, what God spoke about him. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Is it because of all the great ministry Jesus had done? No, because he hadn't done anything at that point. This was the beginning of his ministry. Is it because of his great actions and great accolades? This is my son, and he's a carpenter, and I'm very well pleased with his cabinets. No, it had nothing to do with his vocation. It had everything to do with his identity. This is my son. He has my spirit in Him. I have poured this out on Him. You should listen to Him. God spoke over Jesus, and He speaks over you and I too. When we choose to put God first, when we're buried in baptism, raised a new life, we are chosen, we are sanctified, we are fully surrendering to God. He says, I have my spirit in you. Amen? His His Spirit comes upon us. And John 16, 13 says the Spirit will guide us into all truth. Friends, I want us to be people of the Word. I don't want that to be a cute little saint. But if we're going to be people of the Word, we're going to see His Word. We're going to use His Word. We're going to focus everything through His Word. And when the culture attacks it, we're going to know that our God is with us. We will see him. We will hear his teaching. We will speak the name of Jesus. We will have an assurance that God's word is correct. He will be king of our hearts. Not just to have a cute little saying, but, and not just so that we know all the secrets of heaven, but that everybody has access to God. That's why we're bringing the tabernacle back. He said, build me a place and I will dwell among you. Now that tabernacle is right here. He wants to live among us. Friends, the telephone game is flawed, amen? We all know that, all right? It's going to twist. It's going to change. But evidence will prove God's Word is not flawed. It has been preserved supernaturally so that we know what we hold now is what they wrote then. I want you to have trust in the consistency of God, because then we will be people of His word. Would you pray with me? God, your word is power. Your word is healing. Your word is life. God, your name is power, Your name is healing. Your name is life. And we want you to be king of our hearts, king of our life, king of everything that we do. Take control. Father, when culture mocks us, when we don't understand, remind us of how consistent you are. You are the great God, the great King above all kings. Be King of our heart right now. Through Jesus we pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in portales New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission connect with us visit our website at centralwired.org